Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the forests of eastern Canada in Mi'kma'ki and our relationships to them. We share delight in the wonders of forest ecosystems, talk about forestry, conservation, and many interconnected issues, and are on the lookout to discover sustainable, creative, traditional, and respectful ways of relating to the forest. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions, perspectives, and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground, where as humans we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving forests and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. Sometime after my first trip to Beals Brook, at what is known as Last Hope Camp, I made the journey up there again to this small forest slated for logging in Annapolis County in the Gisbuktwik district of Mi'kma'ki. This land, as well as where I edited this episode, is on the unceded and traditional territory of the Mi'kmaq people. I spent two nights at the camp, this time in a prospector's tent, actually during some quite extreme winds for which the county had put out wind and rain warnings. Through every kind of weather, rotating groups of campers have been protecting this small area of forest and wetlands through direct action. As of the release of this episode on May 24th, folks have been protecting this forest for 174 days. This time, you will hear my conversation with Nina Newington. Nina is a gardener, carpenter, writer, forest protector, and member of Extinction Rebellion. She and her wife live on the North Mountain Gisbiktwik district of Mi'kma'ki. Nina and I talked, over tea, in the prospector's tent, which is surprisingly comfortable and lovely, with a kitchen area with handmade mugs, a small table and chairs, and artwork throughout. I've been really appreciating the art. It makes it really cozy and strangely beautiful, you know? It, we actually, from very early on, realized that we had an available art brigade, which is what I call them. And so there were all these artists in Annapolis Royal. So, I mean, like that was one of the things I took from XR early on when I saw the early Extinction Rebellion stuff in London. It was beautiful. Mm. And I realized that that element of care... I mean, there's a lot of very classic feminine stuff in a lot of those things. So when we had, when I told you about the contractor coming down and being all pissed off, it was like the having a table with a tablecloth and lilac and a teapot was very much coming from looking at how some of the Extinction Rebellion stuff was done and how some of the anti-fracking working class grandmothers in Lancashire had done stuff hmm. where they really put attention into that stuff. And it takes a lot of the kind of aggression and discomfort and confrontationalness and gives it this kind of no no we're doing this because we're taking care of things sort of quality which i think is really important the extinction rebellion took over some of the bridges across the thames between the north of london and the south of london and turned one of them into a garden bridge huh. and it was beautiful and people brought house plants and potted trees and like you know and then one day there was a picture of like the back of a van and it looked really raggedy and crappy. And it was like, and I watched the kind of emotional impact on me and I went, ooh, okay, suddenly it felt dangerous. And, you know, who are these people? And, uh -huh. and I was like, wow, okay, this is, 
This is actually really important to pay attention to. Okay, so this is, an this is yeah. intentional. Yeah, it's very intentional. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it makes us feel better. Yeah, well, that's important too. You know. Keep the morale up yeah. of the, all the people spending all this time out in all the different weather. An expression of love and care, actually. Yeah. And was, um, is there a story about, um, I just vaguely remember someone telling me about there's a little carving out there. Did someone do that as a Christmas gift for you? Yeah. Yeah, this was actually wonderful. A, a fellow called Perry Monroe, who's one of the last master guides in the old tradition, which meant that they knew enough to take people, to guide people hunting, fishing, and sort of nature knowledge. And he came to camp with his daughter and his partner and just brought all these wonderful gifts. I wanted to pause here to let you know that there's a small event happening at Last Hope Camp on June 4th, where Perry Monroe will be sharing some stories and giving a chainsaw wood carving demo. I will put a link in the show notes. Back to Nina now, telling me more about Perry. He had worked with Bowater Mersey, and he was able to just, he went in this riff. You know, this isn't lumber country, this is moose country. It's not worth that much for lumber, but it's incredibly worth mm -hmm. protecting for the moose. And this is what Bowater Mersey actually did pay some attention to wildlife. And why do we have a government that's now not doing that? Now this is crown land. And Wow. Okay, so now I just want to stop and ask, do, do you or did he or do other people think that the land might be might have been actually better taken care of during the Boward or Mersey time than it is now when it's government land? Well, opinions vary. However, Boward or Mersey used to leave 30 meters of buffer around streams. West Fork not only doesn't do that, they leave 20 meters, which is the absolute bare minimum and it's not nearly enough. But they go and cut the bit that was left by Bowater. And, you know, Randy talked them into not cutting this 24 hectares. Bowater, that is. Yeah. yeah. And here's Westfall coming in trying to get, you know, what out of this little area. So, yeah, I yeah, know it's a real question and people are very upset. I mean, there was the whole buyback for water. Where basically, yes, all they took a whole bunch of Bowater lands and turned it into Crown land. Right. Yeah. About but people raised money. So. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, 10 years ago. And people were extremely upset that, I mean, the idea was that this was going to be conserved and looked after and it was going to be, you know, really different. Mm. And the Liberal government basically handed the license to manage it to a forestry consortium, Westfor. And they did it right before the Leahy report officially started being made. And apparently Leahy was really pissed off. This was kind of an end run to get the the Crown land kind of into forest management hmm. in the wake of, you know, there having already been this big public consultation that the NDP did and the natural resource strategy. And, you know, yes, we're going to, you know, reduce clear cutting by 50%. We really hear you. You hate this. This needs to change. The liberals came in, they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they say, then they say they're not going to use the word clear cutting again. And they start using this other stuff. And then they just drop the, the pledge to cut clear cutting by 50%. Mm. And people were outraged. And we had the forest funeral five years ago. And then they kind of, you know, then they were like, oh, well, okay, we'll have the Leahy report. You know, we'll have another damn study. Mm -hmm. And that <laughs> damn study basically said. And the damn study said, 
Uh, all of the forestry practices in Nova Scotia have degraded the forests. There needs to be real change. And the biggest key point is the overarching priority has to be managing forested lands in Nova Scotia for ecosystem health, the protection and enhancement of ecosystem health. And if that were really happening, that would be great. But it isn't happening. And partly, you know, the report came out in August 2018. The government of the day accepted all the 45 recommendations in December of 2018. Nothing happened. This government got in. They put into their Environmental Goals and Climate Change Reduction Act. Okay, we'll implement Leahy by 2023. So five years from when the results of the report were accepted. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are beginning to work on it a tiny bit. But it has been just an incredible uphill battle because, well, Leahy did a review of... Just recently. Right. Yeah. And it absolutely was excoriated. <laughs> the Liberal government and this government so far doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot better because... And one of the things he said is that the Department of Natural Resources doesn't... Not only are they not doing this, they don't get the need to do it. There has to be a culture change. Mm-hmm. What Leahy's statement about ecological health, and he really he spells it out in the executive summary, you know, page III, the very beginning is, this means we no longer balance economic value against ecological value. Ecological health comes first, and everything else has to follow that. Why? Because economic health and all the other kinds of health depend on ecological health. That's the foundation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't get much clearer than that. Right. Since Nina and I had this conversation, DNRR made an announcement about further implementing the Leahy Report, and that these changes would come into effect on June 1st. I must say, when I heard this news, I felt a sense of relief and excitement, that maybe things are actually turning around. My reaction was combined with an undercurrent of uncertainty, I guess. I hope it's true that this is actually good news. I need to understand it better. I sent Nina a letter asking her what she makes of this. I will read now what she wrote in response. Not to be a Grinch, but don't be too cheered by this announcement. They are implementing one of Leahy's 45 recommendations. From June 1st, harvest prescriptions, as they are called, will be generated using the new Silviculture Guide to the Ecological Matrix, or SGEM. Yes, this should result in less clear-cutting of some crown land. But I say some for a couple of reasons. First, it turns out that this change will only apply to what is described as the Acadian forest part of crown land. The maritime boreal forest part will go on being clear-cut the same old way. Second, as you can guess from the name, the SGEM only applies to the ecological matrix. Leahy's recommendations call for a triad system in which crown land forests are divided into three legs, protected, ecological matrix, and high production forestry. Unfortunately, the government has skipped a crucial step in implementing Leahy, the one that would identify which areas belong to which leg. This would require the landscape-level planning Leahy recommends, as opposed to the current system of piecemeal harvest approvals. DNRR is used to treating all forests on Crown land as available for logging unless they have already been protected. But this government has made a huge commitment to protecting another 330,000 hectares, 
that's 815,000 acres, of land in Nova Scotia by 2030. The current plan appears to be cut first and protect later. Changing how prescriptions for cutting are generated, the change happening now, does not address the question of whether a particular forest should be cut at all. This has been the point we have been making from the beginning of the Last Hope Camp. This forest should not be cut. Full stop. It makes no difference that the particular prescription for this forest complies with the SGEM. This forest belongs in the protected leg of the triad. It is ecologically valuable as one of the few remaining standing forests in the area. Landscape level planning would have taken into account how few areas of intact natural forest over 80 years old remain on the South Mountain. I could go on about all the other excellent recommendations Leahy makes that needs to be implemented as soon as possible, such as reviewing the inadequate buffer zones around the riparian areas and actually obeying the Endangered Species Act. But I want to focus on what Leahy himself considers the most important point of his whole report. Protecting and enhancing ecosystem health must be the overarching priority from now on. We can no longer balance economic priorities against environmental ones. The health of our natural systems comes first because everything else depends on it. The day DNRR makes protecting ecosystem health the foundation for all their decisions, that will be the day we celebrate the implementation of the Leahy Report. That will be the day we can all start working together to restore the health of our forests and to create genuinely sustainable forestry practices. Until then, expect half-measures and trickery. Sorry, but that's the voice of experience. So that's what Nina had to say. And she also um, reiterated that it's really worth looking at Leahy's evaluation. And so I have uh, left the link to his report from 2018 and also his more recent, from the fall of 2021, evaluation of progress. I've added those to the show notes for this episode. So now, back to our conversation in the prospector's tent. So, you know, here we are, a 24 hectare forest Mm -hmm. that Westfall puts into cut when it was spared by the private landowner 20 years ago. Under the current system, you basically don't get any notice that these things are happening. So the first that the local people who've loved and cared about this land for all of these years find is they see the flagging. They, you know, this is Randy Neely and Ian Thompson. They contact the Department of Natural Resources who ignore them. His grandfather owned the 48 acres of land that he owns that abuts this parcel. And his grandfather's dearest wish was that they conserve it. And he's willing to put that land into conservation. You know, mm-hmm. he's, you know, Randy's who talked Bo Water Mersey out of, out of cutting this 20 years ago. He's a hunter and a trapper. He's been here, you know, on this land forever. He's seen wood turtle, which is an endangered species down by Beals Brook. He's seen the tracks of pine marten, which are only officially endangered in Cape Breton, but they're basically threatened everywhere because they rely on old growth forest. Old Forest, you know, another local guy, had, I mean, we have a photograph of a moose from the fall of 2020 in Beale's Meadow just over there. You know, there's a lot of stuff, but when they went to DNR, when Randy went to DNR, they just blew him off. So he went to see our MLA, Kerman Kerr, who then contacted DNR and was able to arrange a meeting. And they basically said, well, there's nothing we can do, it's too late. 
It's like, well, it's not too late. They haven't cut it yet. Mm-hmm. But, oh, we've gone through our planning process, so it's too late. Mm-hmm. You know, call call Westfall. So he called Westfall. Westfall didn't answer his call until Carmen Curra interview, intervened. Then Westfall said, oh, no, it's too late. We're going to start cutting in the next two weeks. Which was the point at which Randy posted on Facebook. And I happened to see those. It was a comment on some other post, I think. And, and contacted him and just thought, Okay, you know, I live nearby. We know the South Mountain is getting just massacred mm-hmm. with clear cuts. And, you know, here's a, here's a chance to get in ahead of the equipment and say no. Like, you know, and then I met with him and we came out here and he talked about this land and what he knew about it and the species at risk and how valuable it was. And I looked at the map of all the wetlands that are around it and how it connects them. And driving here, you can't exactly escape the fact that it's, an island of 80-year-old trees in a sea of clear-cuts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like so much has been cut all around it. So, you know, it was like, well, actually, this is ridiculous. They're not planning on clear-cutting this, but they're planning on cutting it. They're planning on taking 30% of it, and that will additionally will be extraction routes into it, and that's going to destroy its value ecologically. <sighs> And why? They should be putting this up for protection. They've said they're going to protect all this extra land, but they don't seem to be doing any of the kind of planning you would need to do where you first decide whether it should be cut before you decide how it should be cut. Right. So you're referring to the government has said that they are going to protect 20% of, of all of Nova Scotia by 2030. And that was actually put into law. They didn't just do it as an election pledge. When they, when they got in, they did this EGRA, the Environmental Goals and Climate Change Reduction Act. And in it is a legislated commitment to protecting 20% of Nova Scotia by 2030. Right. And in the meantime, if everything gets cut or even partially cut, what are we protecting in in the next eight years? And very specifically, we know that the southwest of Nova Scotia is regarded as the remaining fiber basket. It's the remaining source of high-volume, high-value forests because they've already been decimated in most of the province. When you look at the satellite maps, it's really visible. So there's a tremendous pressure on southwest Nova Scotia to come in and get the last of these high-volume areas. And by high-volume, they mean actually high ecological value. They mean you know older mixed-species forests that have been allowed to grow naturally for, you know, 80 or 100 years versus all the failed tree plantations and we've already decimated almost all the real like old old growth but these this is you know 1958 there were 25% of Nova Scotia forests were over 80 years old that percentage that was a quarter of all the forests mm-hmm, is down to sound. is down to between 1 and 5% and that's all the forests in Nova Scotia. That's not on Crown Land. So how do we protect? You know, what we know about those old forests is they're more climate resilient. They're more rich in biodiversity. They support a more complex ecosystem, which is why they're more resilient. You know, they actually store more carbon as much carbon is stored in the soil as in the trees. Mm-hmm. So you cut down the trees, expose the soil to the sun and elements, and the soil loses its carbon. Right. 
which is also the same thing as saying it loses its organic matter, which is to say it loses its fertility mm-hmm. and its ability to buffer acidity and all sorts of other things. So, you know, the forestry industry likes to talk about clear-cutting forests as being like farming. It's like cutting corn. Now, we won't go into the fact that the valley soils are being depleted also by the practices of industrial agriculture. Mm-hmm. But even if that weren't the case, forests are really different. Corn is an annual crop. You know, it, it's ecological niches. It produces seed every year, makes lots of seed, and then dies. That's not how forests work, <laughs> you know? Like, even for a yellow birch tree to get to the age where it sets seed, it's got to be 30 years old or older. It, it takes a really, really long time to grow a mixed species, mixed age forest. And it may not even be, it's becoming less possible because of climate change. Climate change is implicated with invasive insects, which are beginning to attack all sorts of things. Invasive species, when you open up a clear cut, you basically, with all those ruts in it, you create the perfect ground for invasive species like glossy buckthorn and multiflora rose. So you're doing all of these things that go the exact opposite to where we should be going when we're facing a climate and biodiversity crisis. Mm -hmm. And what we should be doing, and we could be doing, we can do it. (laughs) You know, the government has even pledged to do it, is to protect what should be protected. We need to keep what we have. We can't go on nibbling away, nibbling away, nibbling away, which is what's happened and made so many people feel so despairing over the last few years. You know, you get these pledges and it's all talk and log. So that's what we're doing here. We drew Mm -hmm. a line in the sand and said, you know what? Enough. (laughs) Yeah. And when you say we did that, who who is we? What what kind of people care about this? Who wants the forest protected? I mean, the we has ranged in age from 22 to 77 at this camp. So we've got a tremendous range of people. We have, you know, a local farmer and a hunter and a fisherman and a trapper and another fisherman and a master corporal in the Air, Air Force, you know, who are all on board with, with protecting this area. And then we have a whole array of people, almost all of whom come from rural Nova Scotia. Um, all over the... I just camped yeah. last night with someone from Pictou County. That's right. quite a distance. It's very distributed around rural Nova Scotia. But I think it's all people who, in one way or another, are connected to the natural world. And sometimes that's as, you know, paddlers, like Sandra's been canoeing since she was, I don't know, she's been canoeing for like 73 years, I think. Wow. Um, but, you know, the 22-year-old uh, works in a, you know, hospital as hospital staff in Dartmouth. You know, we do have this, this kind of array of people who care. But who else we found are real allies of the hunters? And actually, quite a few of the snowmobilers who come through. Mm. You know, so anyone who enjoys being out in, in the woods, right. Who, right. who doesn't enjoy being out in clear cuts and not right. seeing animals, not hearing mm-hmm. birds and all those things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, most of the forestry jobs have been mechanized away. You know, as you move to bigger and bigger clear cutters, and bigger and bigger fellow bunches, bigger and bigger equipment, the number of jobs has gone down. Uh, catastrophically in the last 20 years. So, you know, you go from a 1,000 direct jobs in the woods to 400. You go from 10,000 jobs connected to the forestry industry to down to about 4,000, if that. 
Which isn't to say that the job, the, those people's jobs are unimportant. They are really important. We actually need a just transition from industrial forestry. So the government is beginning to put some money into training people to do ecological forestry. And that's okay as long as we're really clear about what is going to be available for forestry and what is going to be protected because we need to rebuild resilient ecosystems for all of our well-being and all of our health. Because none of us have a life or health without the life support systems that nature provides. I mean, we're part of nature. It doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. to keep decimating nature and acting as if it's all going to be good. Because what we have now, the bill has come due. (laughs) You know, the profits have been taken. And either at this junction, either you can destroy the rest trying to get the last scrabbling bits of profit, or you can say, wow, this was a really bad direction. Let's figure out how to change direction. Let's figure out how to help the people who need help because we're changing direction. You know, let's do this. Let's work out what is ecological forestry going to look like when you're dealing with acres and acres and acres, I mean, thousands and thousands of hectares of clear cuts. Mm-hmm. How, how's that going to work? What's it going to look like? I mean, I think we all want that conversation. Right. Yeah. The, the only divergence is we want, to, we need to stop right now with the destruction because there's so little that is left. Right. Until it's figured out properly, yeah. until people figure out how to work together and make mm-hmm. a better plan that considers yeah. people and the rest of the, the species as well as future people. I mean, we also have to really acknowledge that this is unceded land. You know, this isn't crown land that's owned by the crown. It's not our land exactly in the sense of, you know, all Nova Scotians get to be owners of this land. It might be common land, Mm -hmm. but it is essentially unceded Mi'kmaq land. And... There's all this talk about reconciliation, but where actually is the consultation in this? You know, where, like, there are little tiny initiatives around, there's some Mi'kmaq forestry initiatives. But, you know, when land was handed over to those guys, well, that was all clear-cut land. Like... (sighs) Right. So so there's a lot... By addressing these issues, so so much could be solved, like, to to work with Mi'kmaq people Mm -hmm. in a fair and just way finally and then also to solve some of the problems of climate change and biodiversity loss and carbon sequestering carbon it just seems like so many things are to be gained by finding a better way Mm -hmm. to to um live within our forest and take what we need from them but with all also respecting the bigger systems like like you're not saying i'm just wondering Mm -hmm. if this is a misconception that Uh needs to be pointed out more strongly about um people who care about this issue I would say the majority of them are not saying you, we're never going to use wood again for anything right. and we're completely anti-forestry, but, but against this current mm-hmm. system is causing a lot of damage that's not really long-term good for anybody. I mean, look, I, I made my living as a carpenter for years. I like building with wood. I don't want us to have no wood to build with, but I also don't want us to destroy the remaining older forests that can provide the base for rebuilding the natural forest systems of Nova Scotia because we're greedy for the last five years of cutting that's available because we're really we're really down there <laughs> um, so absolutely we need we need to protect but we also need to work out how to 
use some resources respectfully. And that's, that's a challenge all over the globe. I mean, basically, we're all at this point going to have to figure out how to back off from going past the planet's ecological boundaries on so many fronts. Mm -hmm. You know, it isn't just going to be, well, if we slash emissions, it's all good. Because in North America, so Canada and the US, we just basically passed our share of ecological resources about two days ago for the year. And, wow. we, and it's March 14th or and it's, something. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we don't, we don't have a right to use as much as we use. Internationally speaking. Right. I mean, like for the good of the whole. Yeah, yeah. for the good of the whole. Um, but I don't think that, I, I don't think myself that dialing back and working out how to move to a more circular economy, how to be more respectful of the natural world, I don't think that's going to be bad. I think it's actually going to take us in a better direction and towards a society that more of us will actually enjoy living in. Because I don't think the society we're living in right now is all that great for most people. Yeah. You know, it's it's lonely and scary and anxiety-producing, and that was before COVID. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, people are struggling to make ends meet yep. and feed their families, and they're probably in jobs that don't match their values and don't mm -hmm. have much hope for the future, all sorts of, I mean, I'm sure lots of and, people. And, you know, don't have good transport options and don't, I mean... There's so many things that if we turned and said, wow, this is really an emergency, what can we do and what do we need to do right now and how are we going to muster the resources collectively to do this and engage people's energy and enthusiasm and sort of creative thought and willingness to do stuff, we could be turning towards a much, much nicer place to live. You know, And Nova Scotia already has like some of the some of the values that we need are still present here. I mean, in rural Nova Scotia, people really do have an ethos of looking after each other. Even if there are all sorts of feuds and people hate each other as well. <laughs> you know, if somebody gets a nasty form of cancer, there is a fundraising get-together. And people go and contribute to it, even if they don't go talk to that person because they're in some enmity or another about something. You know, there hasn't been enough money for people to just say, hey, I've got great insurance, I don't need my neighbors. Mm -hmm. So the idea that people need each other and need support, I mean, we saw it with COVID, right? Nova Scotia was really great at stepping up to do things to protect each other. So we, can't, we have a human resource here in a habit of caring for each other and understanding that it isn't just like every person for themselves, get what you can and never mind, yeah. you know? Yeah, because obviously there are at least, I mean, I kind of think of, you know, the root, the roots of things and then the more obvious surface things that mm -hmm. you might be more likely to see. You know, you think about some people that think the forestry as it is, is, is fine. Mm -hmm. And then the other people that isn't. And then you think, oh, you, you have differences of opinions. Maybe, you know, it's us versus them mentality. But if you go a little bit deeper, and I don't think you have to go very far mm -hmm. to see all sorts of shared values, you know, mm -hmm. amongst all of us, like all of us want... A healthy world to live in somewhere mm -hmm. we can in, in, you know enjoy and feel safe and and obviously most people love nature everybody wants mm -hmm. their children and grandchildren to have a healthy future so mm -hmm. I, I just feel like those are kind of base things that we could all agree on and it's just a mm -hmm. matter of like how we're going about things that maybe we we have difference of opinions on right now i think i think that's true i also think people need to feel respected and 
that there's an element of, you know, if you're poor and working in Nova Scotia and scratching stuff together and trying to have whatever job you can get and somebody who is perceived as coming in from the city is going, well, why don't you drive an electric vehicle? I mean, this is the caricature. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of room in there for people feeling like, hey, you really don't get my life. Right. And you don't get what I'm up against. And I think that if we're going to make progress, we have to work at listening to each other and really recognizing what people are up against. Yeah. You know, and that there's a lot of stuff that isn't easy, but it doesn't have to be solved by destroying nature. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be solved by making an uninhabitable planet. Right. <laughs> None of those things are going to make it better. Mm-hmm. But doing the stuff that we need to do to address the climate crisis, to address biodiversity loss, actually also has the potential to make those things better. But there is a real need to listen and respect. And I think a lot of people feel not listened to and not respected. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that doesn't cost anything. <laughs> mm. You know, we can work on listening to each other and respecting and it's, you know, it's not always easy work, right? But if we don't do that, we're going to end up in some bad dead ends. Yeah, so you've already you've already touched on a lot of different related issues in the, mm-hmm. in the bigger picture. And I'm just wondering if there's anything else you think we should know about the background of this camp or why you're here. What, what other things do you think would be important for people that maybe don't know so much about what's going on to mm-hmm. know? I think... One of the things that really got to me as soon as a couple of us came out with Randy Neely to look at this site was when he stood just over there and said, this is where the last Hope Moose Camp was. That there had been in the 1920s when game was already scarce because of settler activities and pressure, there were always so many moose here. And this was before the real introduction of white-tailed deer, which are not native here. You know, that there were so many moose here reliably that they made the camp and they called it Last Hope because if you hadn't already, you know, shot your your moose for the winter, you could pretty much count on coming here and getting your winter's meat. And now we know that moose are probably the whole population of mainland moose in Nova Scotia may be as low as 100. It's probably somewhere between 100 and 700 animals. And they are extremely dependent on having habitat that isn't broken up by roads and isn't chopped up and they need they need near each other they need the kind of wetlands that are here because they eat a lot of aquatic plants in the especially in the summer but they also need mature mostly evergreen forests to shelter in in the winter and for summer shade and you can have all the wetlands in the world but if you don't have the other components of their habitat it's not good for them and here's this forest which has some of the few remaining bits around here of softwood forest stand. So most of this forest is oak and pine, but it has these kind of lower areas which are probably the highest value to the logging industry. So I'm absolutely sure they would be in the 30% that would get cut. And it, there was something about just going, wow, we have this endangered species. We have all this government games that have gone on. They finally produced a recovery plan that identifies core habitat, which is only 18 years overdue. It was supposed to happen a year after the moose was declared endangered. But it doesn't actually do anything. It, it says, hey, this is some possible you know, core habitat for moose, but it doesn't protect it. 
and we're right on the boundary of where that is. But the idea that they're just going to come in and cut in an area where moose are known to, to use and to live, I just thought, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's such a gut feeling for so many of us that just goes, this is so wrong. This is so wrong and we need to say no and I can't go on sitting at home going, ah, this has to change. At some point, you just have to take some responsibility and say, you know what, I'm going to do what I can. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm out of order in saying that everybody who comes to camp has that core feeling that I'm going to do what I can. And the thing I should say about it is it feels much, much, much better to do that than it does to sit at home Mm -hmm. feeling despairing. Yeah, feeling despairing. Like, sure, it's hard to come and camp in the cold and it disrupts your life and it's got challenges. But at the heart of it, it's got a really good feeling which is, I'm going to do what I can, and it turns out I'm going to do it in the company of lots of other people who are doing this, which is an incredible blessing, because you meet all of these really interesting people who share a willingness to take action on behalf of what they love and what they care about. That's pretty good company. That's pretty good company. So although it's you know difficult what we're doing, it's also wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, It's also an opportunity. And I really want people to know that, that that taking action, sure, it can be difficult, but you know, you don't need everything. You can just cobble stuff together. You can improvise. You can figure it out. What you need is to connect with other people. Yes. And one of the ways that happens is you just start doing it. And once you start doing it, like this is a fantastic, amazing example of um, a small group of dedicated people starting something. And, and uh, I mean, now you look at the camp, there's several tents set up. There's a wood stove here to keep warm in the really extreme mm-hmm. weather. Um, anyway, all, all, you're able to take care of yourselves here and it's somewhat comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it looks like this, like really kind of as with your artwork around this beautiful little, little community that sprung up, mm-hmm. but a lot of support, a lot mm-hmm. of different people and help rallied to make this happen, right? Like, it's not like you started off with right. all these resources. People came and offered mm-hmm. what they could. Some people mm-hmm. camped and a lot of people did other things to help. Absolutely. I mean, there were five of us who started camping. But even that first day, there were two people who came to help put up a tent that they were loaning us. Mm-hmm. And somebody else came in with a stove, you know, um, and then somebody else brought in some firewood. You know, so just from the very start, um, the people who come and camp, that's sort of the visible, you know, that's the iceberg above. (laughs) But there's an amazing array of ways that people can help. I mean, the ways that people can help with this camp, you know, range from donating money, which bless people, they do. People sent baked goods. People brought food. People brought water. They brought coffee. They brought, you know, carts to lend. Um, They brought another, they loaned us another tent. And there's something in that kind of, if you do something and you say, hey, we need help, mm-hmm. and you're given help, not only do you receive the help, but other people have the opportunity to offer it. And that's a really lovely thing that happens. And right. it doesn't happen unless you go out there and start doing something and say, hey, you know what, we need help. I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. Most people really like to help, mm-hmm. you know, if they if they think something important's happening or if they like you as mm-hmm. a person and you're doing something that's mm-hmm. important, they want. I mean, I feel like this often mm-hmm. that I'm overwhelmed by all the challenges of the world mm-hmm. and so many things are wrong and it's easy to feel really, um, you know, become depressed or or to fall into kind of modern traps of how we learn to cope with these things mm-hmm. as, you know, individuals in the society. 
you know, some sort of escapism or, mm-hmm. you know, addictive behaviors or things that are, you know, not healthy for us or, or, or any, anything else. But if we were to just take that first step, say this one small thing, I mm-hmm. mean, small, I'm putting that in air quotes mm-hmm. now, actually, because, but anyway, this one thing is really important to me and I'm going to take a step to try to do whatever I think mm-hmm. it is you probably are going to have all sorts of people come and join you in pretty short order mm-hmm. and, and then it will grow from there. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any sense of how, how many people have been involved here in one way or another so far, roughly? I did an international women's day post of photographs that just had women in them. So I just use that as a filter uh-huh. and there were 54 different women in those photographs. I know there were a good another 15 who were in other photographs and then there were guys so I reckon we're at least 80. Who have been out who, to the camp. Actually, yeah. Probably have been out to the camp. And then beyond that is are circles of people who've helped in various ways. I mean, you know, we've got people's loan of sleeping bags or uh, people who sent food down with somebody else. Right. Um, yeah, it's hard to... I don't know what the count for donations is, but I'll bet it's probably close to 100 people. Wow. So it is really... It's really wonderful, and I just want to say one other thing about that, which is actions that are taken where you physically get in the way of what damages the earth are different and more powerful than symbolic actions. You know, whether it's signing a petition or writing a letter, those things are really important. And we, and by the way, that's part of those circles of help. Is you know, we must have people write letters when we ask, say, "Hey, can you write?" Because otherwise the government just goes, oh, that's just a handful of idiots out there and we can ignore them. Mm-hmm. When they get letters from all over the province going, what are you doing? Why aren't you starting to protect? What do you mean you're going to cut that area? You need to be protecting lots of Nova Scotia. Um, it's much harder for them to kind of dismiss us. Mm-hmm. So we need all the people who can't camp, but can do other stuff. But But when the nucleus of it has an actual physical presence that's saying, I'm, I'm drawing a line in the sand, I'm going to be part of stopping the destruction of this particular place. That has a different kind of power. We live in a very kind of virtual world, you know, and a lot of things feel really abstract. And this isn't abstract. This is this forest. Mm-hmm. This forest where it turns out there's three different species at risk, lichens, as well as all the other creatures. Right, which is not something that was found out until you had... Right, <laughs> because, and the, the Department of Natural Resources said, oh, no, it's all good, there's nothing to be concerned about. Our biologists have reviewed it twice because you've had citizen concerns and there's nothing to worry about. And it's like, yeah, they reviewed it from their desks. Like, nobody came out and looked. I know, we were camped here for the second review. you know. And then when somebody did come, they went, oh, wow, you know... I mean, one of those, the frosted, no, the frosted glassy whisker lichen, which I have to say I completely love the name of, it's on the endangered list federally as well as provincially. There's only three other known specimens, specimens in Canada, as far as I know. There's one in BC, BC and two in Cape Breton. Like, so these forests just get mowed down mm-hmm. and we're losing species we probably don't even know about. And it's not just in some rainforest somewhere else in the world. It's I'm here. I just thinking of that. Everybody knows you know? that happens in the, yeah. in the rainforest, but, but it's the here. Amazon. And yeah. this is where we can take some kinds of direct action. And, you know, it feels good. <laughs> yeah. There was one other message Nina sent me later regarding an almost unbelievable update that Westfor has been given responsibility to decide whether to carry on with the planned harvest at Last Hope Forest. 
I will read what Nina sent me. According to Carmen Kerr, our MLA, Tori Rushton is leaving it to West for to decide whether or not to go ahead with cutting the Last Hope Forest. This is astounding, given that Rushton is the Minister of Natural Resources and Renewables. His department is responsible for protecting endangered species. Their record generally, and as it relates to the forest by Beals Brook in particular, is not exactly stellar. DNRR biologists reviewed this 24-hectare forest not once, but twice. They declared there were no species at risk to worry about. When it turned out that there were indeed species at risk in the forest, Rushton paused the harvest. After the lichenologist hired by DNRR surveyed the site and confirmed the presence of seven species at risk lichens, Minister Rushton declared himself satisfied. The cut could go ahead. Now, when citizens have identified another seven species at risk lichen occurrences in the forest, Rushton is placing the decision in the hands of a consortium of mills. In his mandate letter to newly minted Minister Rushton, Tim Houston described Rushton as a solutionist who would be working with a team of solutionists. Rushton's solution to the problem posed by the last hope forest appears to be to shuffle it off like an uncomfortable pair of shoes and walk away. Isn't it time we had a minister who listens to science and takes seriously his or her responsibility to protect and restore the ecosystem health of this province? Back to our conversation. Yeah, so there are obviously a lot of um, important things to, to discuss, and a lot of them are, oh, there's all these problems and all these challenges mm-hmm. to overcome somehow. And so let's let's talk about some of the, the positive visions mm-hmm. you see for what could be. I think the 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 government having made this commitment to protecting 20% of Nova Scotia by 2030, which, by the way, the federal government and globally there's a commitment to protect 30% by 2030, but Nova Scotia being as small as it is and having a smaller proportion of crown land, it's probably realistic to have the current target be 20%. Whether that's ultimately going to be enough? Right now, the... You know, at a global level, there's a suggestion that we may need to end up putting aside 50% mm-hmm. of nature for nature um, if we're going to survive. But as far as, you know, our starting point here, we're trying to stop this forest being cut. But it's not only about this forest, because you always have to understand every forest in context, just like you have to understand people in their communities. Mm-hmm. You start to look around, and part of the value of this forest is that it's, there's so much clear-cutting in the general area. But there is also some areas that haven't been clear-cut, and we need to protect those. And that's part of what's positive, is we're not just fighting bad things that have happened, we're trying to save the good stuff that's here. So to the northeast of us is a little lake called McEwen Lake, and around it is some old forest that hasn't been cut, partly because a couple of guys blew up a bridge when the logging company put it in to go in and cut. Just a couple of local guys, as yep. far as you know? Wow. <laughs> That's one of those not very often told stories, but <laughs> but it is one of the local stories. Um, so as a result, most of that didn't get cut and doesn't have roads into it and is therefore extremely valuable um, ecologically. And it also has a connected right over to Cloud Lake Wilderness, which is on the other side of the highway turn. So what we realized is that we should put in a proposal to protect not just this forest, but the wider area around it. 
Um, it's particularly focused on what remains of intact forest here because it's so rare that it, even if it never had a single species at risk in it, it would still have enormous ecological value simply because it hasn't been chopped yet. So what we did was come up with a proposal to protect an area that comes, that includes that McEwen Lake area, it includes this forest, it reaches over to Eelweir Lake to the west and Cranberry Lake to the west and over to Paradise Lake. And that, that area is, you know, it's got the most wonderful diversity in it. Um, but it also has all this really interesting history. So we're not we're talking about the places where kind of human and natural worlds intersect. So, you know, between this camp and the old forest by McEwen Lake is Mary Brown Brook. And Mary Brown was an African Canadian loyalist. She and her husband came and they were came first to Shelburne and or Liverpool. Shelburne, I think. And felt themselves so badly treated that they left there and they came and ended up basically homesteading in an area that's now called Mary Brown Meadow. And that was Mary Brown Brook and that was Mary Brown Rock where Mary Brown liked to fish. Um, Her husband died and she went on living there for many years. I guess what I'm trying to say with that is that this isn't, you know, a remote wilderness that people haven't interacted with. And really probably most of Nova Scotia there have been human interactions starting with the Mi'kmaq, you know, with with that land. Um, the name of Eelweir Lake almost certainly indicates that it had traditional resource importance for the Mi'kmaq because they got a huge amount of their nutrition from eels. And artifacts have been found in Paradise Lake when the drought brought the lake levels down. So, you know, when you're talking about like a positive vision of protecting an area as a wilderness area, it's not about taking it away from people. Mm-hmm. It's about looking after what's here, but not letting it get destroyed. Right. So, you know, if these forests are left alone and allowed to regrow, the oldest forests will become even older, will begin to replenish the, you know, really old growth that we have. But this 80-year-old forest which is already sheltering very rare species at risk because some much older trees are in the swamps, Mm. will, you know, in 20 years' time, it'll be a 100-year-old forest, and it becomes part of the base of what can rebuild the natural forests around here. So it's full of red oak. Well, the squirrels will spread the red oak. It will spread the acorns. It's got some yellow birch. The yellow birch seed will take over. If you go in and mess with it, that process can't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, looking after it by stopping the things that are threatening it, to me, is a very positive vision of what can happen with areas of this land if we, if we step in and look after them. But I have to say, those threats are real. There's a proposal that's an approved harvest plan to clear-cut around Cranberry Lake. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of moose sign on the east side. It's about 75 acres, including some old forest. Mm. And they've been working on a road to get towards it. We now learned that there's a plan to put in a put in roads to go into McEwen Lake from Highway 10 and be able to cut that. Yeah. So um, the positive part of this would be if we could get the government to put the area under consideration for protection those threats would stop. Mm 
at least until a decision is made. Um, so that's a really important thing to us um, because we can't keep watching more and more being destroyed. No. Um, no, and especially, like, you just made it re- really clear, like, this is a benefit to so many mm-hmm. people. It's a historic benefit and cultural benefit as well as obvious e- ecological mm-hmm. benefit for, for all of our mm-hmm. sakes. And uh, and then the, the only, you know, group that would really not benefit would be the big companies that are trying to clear-cut for, mm-hmm. for purely economic gain. Um, but, I mean, over time, even that could be mediated right like it's your you, right. but but i just it just feel like if you just look at like how many people or how many beings will benefit on the mm-hmm. one hand versus how many wouldn't on the other hand if you like want to even look at it like that because we tend to mm-hmm. it just seems like a very clear weight in the mm-hmm. area of protection and very you know to sort of further take that weight this area like most of the south mountain of nova scotia has thin, poor, acidic soils. And the Department of Natural Resources, actually, one of their staff people did really good research. They wrote a really good paper about how these soils can't sustain heavy cutting and keep regrowing. They just won't. So, and terrifyingly, that's what we see happening here. So, you know, it within the area that we, around the area that we were talking about protecting, I went to look at a harvest, that, a clear cut that had been done 2018 to 2019, so about three years ago. And along the way, there were all these other clear cuts that looked very similar. They kind of went to the one that, you know, we knew from the harvest plan map viewer had been done in this time frame, and then kind of stopped and looked at these other ones and thought, well, gosh, when were these done? And are they on, maybe they were on private land, but seems to be just the same kind of age. Like they really haven't grown very much. They've just got little stubbly stump sprouts and, Mm -hmm. So I put pictures on the Facebook and somebody wrote on, oh no, those weren't done three years ago. Those were done 20 years ago. Wow. And I went, so I went in and did a little research and no, one of them was done three years ago. But the other one that looked like it was done the same time was actually done about 15 years ago. So they're not regrowing the way people expect they will? And this is exactly what the Department of Natural Resources Science told them. Hmm. That if you do this cutting on these very thin acidic soils, the way we were talking about before, you, you, you let the sun onto the soil, you've rutted it up, the organic matter... Basically, the the processes in the soil speed up and the carbon is released, the organic matter is gone. You have even less capacity to hold nutrition in the soil and you have these issues with acidity. So instead of growing another forest, it ends up, in some of these places, moving towards heathland, towards not even supporting trees. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing there. Right. So they're basing their management plans, though, on this idea that it's okay, you can cut the whole forest down because it'll just grow again. Yep. But apparently that's that's not true. I mean, that really changes the, the conversation. It, it really does. And I mean, I think, you know, within the Leahy report, there's this idea that there's going to be some portion given over to high production forestry, which would be clear cutting. And it's supposedly a small proportion. It's not a third. It's, you know, maybe 10 to 15 percent. The theory of that is this is how you're going to produce lots and lots of wood fiber and then you don't have to 
you know, cut as much on the others, but you can still produce enough for the mills. But the reality is that's not what's happening with these clear cuts mm. and with the plantations they've done. Mm. So if they're going to go down any of that road, it really needs to be based on results, on outcomes, not on the idea that you can do this. So are they not official, I don't know who they would be, but people coming and checking back to make sure things are going as, as planned? Like there must be government representatives, actual biologists coming back to see how much growth has recurred in those clear-cut areas? Or is that not maybe something that's being followed through? Not on? much is really seems to be being done on the ground. And it's another thing that the Leahy report really highlighted was the absence of good data about the forests in Nova Scotia. One of the main things he calls for is, you know, there needs to be up-to-date information about the state of the forests. Because the forestry industry is like, oh, it's no problem, it's all good. And other people are going, well, no, there is a problem. <laughs> Look at the trucks driving down the highway with the wood on them. Like, they're basically, a lot of them are just ca are carrying toothpicks. You're going in and cutting on shorter and shorter rotations, meaning instead of leaving the forest to grow for 80 years, yeah, you used to leave it to grow for 60 years, and now we're down to 40 years, and now you're talking about rotations of 30 years. So the trees are getting smaller, but not only that, they're just not regrowing in some places, yeah. or they're regrowing really punily and unhealthily. When you throw in the climate change onto that, wow. <laughs> you know, you... It's really kind of desperate what's happening with that. Um, I think when people wake up to this, everybody I've talked to, and I don't mean like my friends, I mean going and leafleting at fairs and the Apple Blossom Festival and the natal days in Annapolis Royal and talking to people and thinking they're going to be like, what do you mean, you, you know, tree huggers? Everybody goes, I hate clear cutting. You know, a crusty old guy comes stomping across the road towards us. I'm like, oh, I wonder what this is going to be. And he's like, I just want you to know I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing because, you know, somebody came to my door and told me they, they would give me this, this much money to clear up my lot. And I told him exactly where to go. I can't drive across this province without crying. Mm -hmm. And if my father were alive to see this, he would, he would be crying because we always looked after our woodlot and left it better for the next generation. I mean, people really have a gut knowledge that this is wrong. You know? Yes, the people it, that know what's happening. The, the people who know. And it, it, you know, I think probably even people who are doing what they have to do to make a living in forestry know that it's wrong. Not all of them, but... Or feel that it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. and feel that it's wrong. Yeah, I, I don't... wonder about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I know that. To and be they true. probably feel like they have no choice because they yeah. need to provide. And yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, it does just seem like pretty much everybody does right. not want this. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, the, the impact. I mean, somebody told me the other day that Randy told me that he, you know, asked our local, the local council for this area, well, has climate change or clear cutting come up with the council? And he said, no, the council was too busy, to, you know, discussing the budget deficit. And I, you know, <laughs> you want to see what, what rising sea levels are going to do to people's budget deficits, but also just look at what the last few massive storms have done, where the clear cutting on the South Mountain means that where forests used to, I mean, forests are a sponge. They used to take in huge rainfalls, 
gather them, release them slowly into streams, which sure would rise, but they wouldn't go into these incredible flood spates. Once you clear cut, there's no sponge. The, the water goes in, it takes the silt, it takes the fertility out of the soil, but it also takes the silt down to the rivers, which messes up the rivers. But along the way, it takes out people's yards and their driveways and the, and the road and their crops. And I mean, it's, it's the cost of allowing a few companies to make profit off clear cutting is being shared by everybody else. It's exactly like all these other things. If people understood how much they're paying for clear cutting, if we really say, whoa, okay, you have destroyed a natural carbon storage. It's the only really good technology we have. It's called trees. You know, they store carbon without having to get, you know, paid and have massive amounts of engineering done. And you've destroyed the natural ecosystems, which include what helps to shelter us from wind, what gather, what stops storms, what keeps water clean. Wow, that's quite a cost that we're all carrying for a few companies to make a buck on the last bit of clear cutting they can squeeze out of the province's forests. Um, mm. Yeah, and then when, when you were just maybe one last thing, yeah. when you were talking about uh, the, the logging uh, road that's proposed to go into Miguin Lake, mm. the place where the, those uh, guys didn't want it to happen mm. and blew up the bridge. What what are the implications of new logging roads going into places that didn't already have roads road access, other than obviously being able to go in and cut the trees? Well, we could let's start with the moose because it turns out the moose habitat is severely compromised the minute you put a road through. The minute there's more than about six percent of an area is road, the moose don't use it anymore. It, they feel too vulnerable. The roads give easy access for predators. They give easy access for poachers. They also encourage the arrival of white-tailed deer who carry this brain worm. Um, the edges of roads and clear cuts are much heavier with ticks, and ticks can sometimes be a problem. So all these things that the forestry industry likes to talk about, everything else that's a threat to moose beside destroying their habitat. Mm -hmm. But all of the habitat destruction, which includes putting in roads before you even do any cutting, makes all the other problems worse. So if you didn't do those, you would give the moose a chance. If you do them, then you mess it up. And that's sort of essentially true for the whole ecosystem. And there's very, there's a minuscule amount of Nova Scotia that isn't broken up by a road somewhere within a kilometer. And that's already a problem for moose, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, but it's also a problem for everything else. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I know. I noticed a lot of this, you know, a lot is about the, the species that are really having a rough time, mm -hmm. possibly to the probably to the point of extinction unless something major changes. But then there's all just all the other life too that may not be extinct but still is valuable to itself and to the and to the larger ecosystem. So just I just think of all mm -hmm. the life. There's just so much life in these forests and some of the most diverse forests, right? In where, where the southern hardwood forest yep. meets the, the boreal forest. Mm -hmm. Like, this is this is a special ecosystem. Mm -hmm. No, it is. I mean, I I think at any time you're talking about the species at risk, what that, what that really needs to flag is the whole ecosystem that supports that moose. So in the case of moose, if you have a healthy moose, you almost certainly have a healthy ecosystem healthy for everything, everything else. else. Right. If you protect 
those rare lichens, the odds are that you're going to improve circumstances for the forest nesting birds. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, what threatens the lichens is allowing wind and sun in. You know, the birds also need that forest cover, a lot of them. But the moose in particular really is, you know, the, there are certain kind of apex species that if they're well off, everything else likely is. And if they're struggling, everything else likely is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not ever only about the moose. Yeah. Because, you know, that idea of all our relations, that's how nature works. It's like mm -hmm. everything is connected. There is no waste. You know, everything is connected. Everything functions in, it, in multiple ways in relationships. When we stupid humans, some of us, you know, think that you can just look at, like, the value of the logs that you take out mm -hmm. and ignore everything else. That's just not actually how the world works. It's an illusion. Yeah. It's been an illusion that has allowed a system that encourages ruthless extraction and doesn't count the costs. Yeah. But suddenly we're all facing the costs. <laughs> we are paying those costs. And yeah. people in the Global South are paying with their lives. You know, yeah. we're already beginning to pay. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think I don't know. This this is in the realm of the positive side. I think there's a deep spiritual loneliness in being as separated from nature as our culture is. Whatever the individuals within it, um, there's a sense of not knowing who you are, where you belong, what your place is in the world. There's all sorts of kind of suffering mm -hmm. that's a part of that, yeah. that I think is really changed if you connect with the natural world and understand you have a part and a place in it. But once you do that, you also have an obligation. We're given gifts constantly by nature. We're kept alive by nature. But unlike a cash exchange in which the deal is done, there's no obligation. When you're given a gift, however freely given, it confers an obligation. And that obligation is, to, is also to give. It's to reciprocate. And we're given our lives by nature. We have an obligation to reciprocate. We have an obligation to look after. You know, we're cared for and we need to care. And we need to act on that care. And we would probably all feel happier if we felt like we were able to achieve the caring that we probably all really want. Deep down. Yeah, because I think that that sense of being a part of a free exchange, you know, in which you're given life and you're also giving to life. And it's a circle that goes through you that you belong to. You're not separate. You're not alone. Mm -hmm. You're not insignificant. You're not powerless. You know, you have a part to play. Like, if we acted like that, we would change how we relate to nature. We'd change how we relate to each other. But we'd also be happier. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, I just had a, a really silly thought when you were telling me about the, the lichen that, mm -hmm. that was found here. And, uh, and the name. Can mm -hmm. you say the name again? Frosted Glass Whiskers Lichen. Oh. That's one of them. Then there's Wrinkled Shingle Lichen and there's Black Foam Lichen. Wow. And there's actually three other very rare lichens that have been found here too. They're just not listed as species at risk. Right. You know. But lichens do tend to have some of the most interesting whimsical names, they, don't they? They do have They're some. almost on par with um, hair salons. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll have to do a. That's a good point. <laughs> we'll okay. have to do a poll and see. Yeah. yeah wow. <laughs> In fact, Lycanologists might start taking hair salon names on for lichens because a lot of these names have been given by the lycanologists. They confess. Oh, they haven't asked the lichens themselves with their names. Well, also, they're not really that many common names for lichens. Like, you know, a lichen that you have to, like the frosted glass whiskers lichen, it's about this big. But you have to look into the kind of rotting heartwood of an ancient red maple. Mm. And you might conceivably with a magnifying glass but maybe even just as your eyes adjust to the dark you might see a stubble lichen and if you were really really lucky you might see the frosted glass whisker lichen but so they're not like there's not a whole lot of common name for them (laughs) (laughs) if you would like to receive regular email updates from the camp send an email to xrns at riseup.net and please consider supporting Shared Ground with a small donation. You can find a donate link on each of the episodes at the Shared Ground Captivate website, as well as at the bottom of the description of the podcast, where you will see a link to support the show. Any little bit helps. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. Until next time, fellow humans.